Well, good morning. I bring you greeting from, greetings from the saints in Smyrna. Uh, Mark and I have, for almost three years, attempted to talk on the phone regularly, which has been a sweet encouragement to me when we succeed at that regularity. Uh, and it's sweet to be able to be with you all and worship with you uh, after hearing about you from far away. Uh, it's a real gift to be able to finally see the saints that I've been hearing about and praying for uh, for years now. I also appreciate ways that you've helped make me feel at home. The first year of our church, we met in a very small building, and the door to the bathroom was right about here. So as you're coming out, just know that you're not distracting at all to me because that's a lot more distance than I am used to. Most of all, I'm glad to be able to, to serve you and, Lord willing, build you up as a congregation by bringing God's word to you. You join me in praying one more time. Father, we praise you for the gift of your word. Lord, thank you that you have taught us. You not just told us that we must follow you, you have showed us how to follow you. And praise you that following you in Jesus Christ is good and delightful. I ask that you would build up Jesus in our eyes even now through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How do you show someone that you really love them? When I was in high school, I wrote a song for a girl that I really liked, the chorus of which was just her name over and over and over again. Soon I realized that maybe poetry wasn't my strongest suit. When I was dating Alana, who's my wife now, she was very long-suffering. I realized that maybe new material wasn't a great idea, so I decided to go classical. So I got a ladder and put it against her dorm room window. And uh, I didn't know how to play any classical music, so I bribed a freshman with ramen to play the violin for me while I stood out her window to ask her to go to the junior-senior banquet. It's often difficult to know how to show someone that you love them. Is it through a grand, extravagant gesture? Is that enough? Is it by pouring out your emotion about them in front of them? Sometimes it's really hard to know what is the most important thing to convey to show that you love someone. And I think that's particularly difficult for us as Christians. The Lord has done so much for us. He is so merciful to us in Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who condescended from heaven, suffered shame at the words of men and then at the hands of men. He bore the cost of our sins. What can we do to show him that we love him? I think we have some help from Luke chapter 7 verse 36 to chapter 8 verse 3. If you're using one of the pew Bibles... Uh, it should be on page 864. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36 and going through the third verse of chapter 8. Just some brief orientation as you turn there. The first nine chapters of Luke, Luke is organized geographically. They're all about Jesus' ministry in the north. And then it will move on the way to Jerusalem and, of course, ends his ministry in Jerusalem. It also is somewhat topically organized. In these first nine chapters, Luke spends a lot of time 
showing through the historical events that he's recording who Jesus is, the person of Christ, as it were. And of course, throughout these nine chapters, we see people responding to that revelation. You think of the beginning of Luke, of course, you've got angels and wise men, and even John the Baptist as a baby, recognizing Jesus and responding in worship and joy. It concludes with that shocking to the disciples revelation that Jesus as the Christ must suffer and die. So the backdrop of this whole section is a revelation Excuse me, though, in the foreground of this whole section is the revelation of who Jesus is. What does it mean when we say he's the Christ? And in the backdrop is what is paid particular attention to in these uh, verses. How we ought to respond to that revelation. How we ought to respond to that revelation. Listen now as I read from God's word. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had, been, had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. It's my habit when I'm preaching to try to give one sentence that I think summarizes what this passage is about. If you're taking notes, this is 
the most important thing to write down, if you don't take notes, this might be helpful to write down anyways. It's the only thing. Then you can just focus. This picture paints a beautiful picture in both parts. Excuse me, this passage paints a beautiful picture in both parts of what happens when a sinner encounters Jesus, understands who he is, and receives forgiveness. So the main idea, I think, of this passage is this. Christ's great forgiveness creates great love and humble service. Christ's great forgiveness creates great love and humble service. And those are the two points. In verse 36 through 50, Christ's great forgiveness creates great love. And then secondly, Christ's forgiveness causes humble service. First, Christ's forgiveness creates great love in verses 36 through 50. That's all of the portion in chapter 7. We begin... We began there with this Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home for a meal. And you see there in verse 36, he accepted the invitation, entered his house, and reclined at table. And reclined at table gives really important context to understand what's going on next. Because in the culture of those days, banquets or special meals were had at a table where you would recline on couches around the table. Your head's towards the table, your legs pointing away. More kind of regular meals, like what we might think of as sort of just family meals, would happen at a table, like we often do. So the fact that they were reclining at table tells us this was a special meal, which is also important because at those kinds of feasts, if you were hosting one, the doors of your house would be open so that even so people could come in and listen to the conversation that was happening among the people who were the special invitees. So that's why when this woman who is a sinner enters Simon's house, he doesn't have a problem with her entering the house because it was technically an open house. Anyone was supposed to be allowed to come in and listen to the conversation among the more educated and cultured people having the important conversation. He may not have wanted her there, but he couldn't exactly turn her out. Notice also how Luke has left even more context out of the story that we kind of have to piece together. Namely, that this woman had already heard of Jesus. She must have either heard him speak somewhere or hear someone talk about him. She knew enough to plan to go to where he was and honor him with this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And as he came, as she, she came into Jesus' presence, perhaps hoping just to sit quietly for a while and hear him speak and teach, she's clearly overwhelmed with Jesus. She is weeping. And her behavior, wetting his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair, is weird to us. Whenever you come across something that is weird in the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to recognize that it also would have been really weird for the people then. This is not like a normal thing that happened, that women would regularly use their tears to wash people's feet. So as weird as that may feel to you as you read it, or the more you think about it, if you've been accustomed to that story, let me assure you to Middle Easterners of that day, this would have been almost shocking and alarming. I mean, culturally, I mean, one, with sandals and with no cars, people's feet were very, very dirty. 
I think gross would have been an appropriate word to use to describe what people's feet would have been like almost all the time. And then on top of that, culturally, it's one of the more shameful parts of the body. So it's dirty in more than one ways. Dirty literally and dirty in sense of being a shameful part of the body. It was shameful to touch someone else with your own foot because that would be showing disdain towards them that you thought that they were less than you. But to choose to touch someone else's foot would have been understood as an expression of great reverence for that person. This is still the case in many parts of the world. In some of the villages in Turkey, not in the city, so friends who are coming, don't try and do this. People will think it's weird even there. But in the villages, it's normal for in family members, for the younger family member, to try to reach down to touch the feet of their senior. And then the senior catches them and brings them into embrace. It's a moment of the younger showing reverence and then the older honoring them by embracing them instead of letting them touch their feet. Or consider how horrified Peter was at the idea that Jesus would touch his feet. That's the context that's going on where this woman is not only touching, but kissing Jesus' feet, washing them, drying them with her hair, anointing them with perfume. This was a great act of love and reverence. And Simon, the host, seeing that, we see in verse 39, is offended. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. A sinner. Notice that it's not clear what kind of sinner she is. Luke doesn't tell us explicitly. I mean, loose hair in those days was a way of conveying that it was a loose woman. So maybe that gives us some hint that her hair was already loose to dry Jesus' feet with. We don't know exactly, but we do know that whatever kind of sinner she was, she was known in the town as a sinner. That was her reputation. Jesus' response to Simon shows he not only knew what kind of woman she was, he also knew what kind of man Simon was. Verse 41, he tells this parable. These two men owing money. One owes 50 denarii, the other 500. 50 would have been about two months of wages. Not a small amount. 500 would have been about a year and three quarters of wages for an average normal worker. The lender completely forgave both of them in that story. And Jesus says, which one will love him more? And I think you can feel how reluctant Simon was when he gave that answer. I suppose the one who owed more money. And then Jesus drove the point home further by comparing what the woman did to what Simon has not done. Simon did not give any water to wash Jesus' feet, a basic act of hospitality in those days. He didn't greet him with a kiss, sort of a slightly higher act of respect to someone as they came into your home, of honoring them. And he gave no oil, which would have been an extraordinary act of hospitality to a particularly honored guest. I think in the the escalation that we can see in that, I think we should understand that it's not so much that Simon, excuse me, that Jesus is upset that Simon has not done these things for him, not even anointing his head in oil, but that the fact that Simon has not done any of these things shows what Simon actually thought of Jesus. Not much. 
Meanwhile, this woman has lavished every kind of honor and sign of affection that she could have possibly done in that moment. So the way that they behaved revealed their hearts. What they did toward Jesus showed this woman loved Jesus much. Simon didn't care much for Jesus at all. And then Jesus teaches us it's because he doesn't think that he needs much forgiveness. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm very glad that you're here. The members of this church are also glad that you're here. You might think it's strange how Christians so quickly jump from a need for forgiveness to talking about Jesus. What does loving Jesus have to do with a need for forgiveness? It would be helpful for you to understand Jesus taught this about himself throughout this gospel and throughout the Bible. That he has paid the penalty for sinners. So that the righteous judgment that you and I deserve because we have not honored God like we should. We've not devoted our lives to glorifying God perfectly like he deserves as our master and creator. All the consequences that we deserve, the punishment for that. Jesus has taken on himself. So you see, for us, Jesus and forgiveness always go together. Because Jesus is how we get forgiveness from God. God gives it to us through Jesus. Because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. And that's important to know because that helps us understand forgiveness is not given to the good people or the almost good enough people. Forgiveness is given to sinners like this woman who is known in the town a sinner. Forgiveness is given to people like Paul who persecuted and hated the church of Christ. Forgiveness is given to sinners like you and like me. The irony is, as Jesus points out, those who think they don't need much forgiveness, as in they think that they got it pretty good, perhaps are the kind of righteous person that should honor Jesus, don't think much of Jesus. That's because if all you need is just a little push, a little bump up to be good enough, to be acceptable to God, why on earth would you need the Son of God to become a man and suffer and die? That's overkill if you think you just need a little bit of forgiveness. And therefore, you will honor Christ less. You will think less about him. The less seriously you treat your own sin. Those of you friends who are going to the Muslim world, or perhaps here you have Muslim co-workers or friends or neighbors, this is a helpful thing to understand. Why is the divinity of Christ, that he is God, so offensive, I think underlying it is the fact that our Muslim friends don't understand how sinful they are. And so they don't see the need for God himself to take on flesh and bear punishment for their sins. That's not just true of people from that religion. I think you can use that as a rubric really for anyone around the world. Why are they not particularly interested in Jesus? Because they don't know how bad they are. They don't know how much they need help. 
So Jesus here is not teaching that Simon really actually did only need a little forgiveness. He's teaching that, Jesus, that Simon thought that. Remember Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned away. All alike are worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That includes Simon and that includes you, my friend. It's not that there are some people who don't need much help to reconcile with God and so don't really need much to do with Jesus. They can just go straight to God. No, no, no. It's that some people don't realize how much they need that same help. How great their sin, how great our sin is. So if you've been sitting here and you've wondered why Christians talk so much about our own sin, why we would have someone come up and lead us in a prayer, just talking about the fact that we are so bad and thought, this is kind of weird. Like, what's wrong with these people? They keep talking about how bad they are. It's not because we want to feel worse about ourselves as Christians. It's not because we think gloominess is akin to godliness. No, it's because we know the more that we recognize how much we need God's grace, the more we will give praise to Jesus. The more we will understand just how much it is that he's forgiven us of. That's why we talk about it so much. The truth is, every single one of us in this room deserve to have the same reputation this woman had. Sinner. And God knows what kind of people we are. Yet he still comes near to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, reflect on that and consider that Christ has forgiven your sin. Because you trusted in Jesus and have continued to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and peace with God, you have it in Jesus Christ. Reflect on your salvation. How wonderful is that? How beautiful of a Savior do we have who loved us and died for us while we were still dead in our sin? How glorious is our Lord? How worthy is he of all the honors that you could ever possibly give to him? He has done so much for you. And you, no matter how long you've been a Christian, I can guarantee have only just begun to understand how much he's done for you. Next to this beautiful picture of this woman who so loves and honors Jesus is the tragedy of Simon the Pharisee. Because Simon did not treat his sin greatly, because he had not seriously repented, he was stunted in his ability to love. But pay attention to that warning. His lack of repentance stunted his ability to love. Love of Christ is so important because as Pastor J.C. Ryle has said, there will never be more done for Christ until there is more hearty love of Christ himself. The fear of punishment, the desire of reward, the sense of duty are all useful arguments for why we ought to serve Christ to persuade men to holiness in their way. But they are all weak and powerless unless a man loves Christ. Do you notice there in verse 47, Jesus says that this woman loves him because her many sins 
have been forgiven. And then look in verse 48. He turns to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Notice what we have here is not a moment of Jesus forgiving this woman for the first time. What we have is yet another example of Jesus giving the gift he loves to give us of assurance. That act that we did after our prayer of confession this morning, we do the same thing in our church, reading an assurance of pardon from Scripture. Have you noticed how much time goes in between when you will use the same assurance? Because there's so many parts of Scripture where God assures us that he is gracious and merciful, that he has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Because when it comes to his mercy to you, God has no problem repeating himself over and over and over. This woman didn't come asking for forgiveness. She came wanting to honor and worship Jesus because she had been forgiven. And how often do we think that we should get people to to maybe listen to some things that Jesus says, start to act a little bit more like he said, and, and then they will start to appreciate his forgiveness. Oh, that's so backwards. Forgiveness will always precede worship. Because it is forgiveness that people love Jesus enough to worship him in these ways. You don't worship and then learn to receive forgiveness. That is only exhausting. But having been forgiven, how much do you think this woman treasured these simple words from Jesus? Your sins are forgiven. Confirming what she had already trusted and believed. Brother and sister, beware growing bored with the gospel message. As if you don't need to be encouraged and affirmed anymore that Christ has accepted you. And God has forgiven you. Seize on to those opportunities, whether it's in the preaching of his word here in this place, the songs that you sing to one another, as you even encourage other people with the truth of the gospel, as you even share the gospel with those who've never even heard it. Remember, in, that, in all of those is the opportunity for you also to be comforted and assured that Christ has forgiven you. Look there in verse 40. The other guests wonder that Jesus forgives sins. It's not the first time that people wonder that about Jesus. It won't be the last time in Luke. They notice he forgives sins because he speaks with the authority of God. Stating that sins are forgiven just because he says so. But what I think is striking here is though Luke tells us that people are commenting on that. Jesus' attention is not on proving his authority to those who are wondering. His attention is on this woman and assuring her of his love and forgiveness. He wants to confirm her again. You see there in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Because she believed in him, she was pure, she was clean. She was forgiven. She was saved. No matter what these other people thought about her. And if you believe Jesus' promises, 
you may depart this house in the same way she left that house in peace. Christ's great forgiveness creates great love. Secondly, Christ's forgiveness causes humble service. Look there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, who, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is describing Jesus' ongoing ministry. If Jesus is just doing the same thing that Luke said he was doing back in chapter 4, going around, proclaiming the kingdom of God was here. But he's not doing it alone anymore like he was doing at that point. The 12 are with him, and also these women are with them. And the description of these women, I think, is remarkable. Just like the woman in Simon's house, they had received great mercy from Jesus. They had all been healed by Jesus. There are all kinds of different women. Mary Magdalene, who had had seven demons thrown out of her. To Joanna, the wife of King Herod Antipas's steward, which would have been a position of great prestige and importance. These two very different women were traveling together with Jesus. Those are also two of the women who discovered Jesus' empty tomb. And also these other women. Susanna, who's only mentioned here, and then many others whose names aren't even given. These women also were traveling with Jesus in the twelve and supported them from their possessions. This is why I think this is such a remarkable passage. In other words, humanly speaking, these women were why Jesus was able to travel around and teach for three years. These women were why 12 grown men, some of, some of whom we know were already married, were able to stop working and follow Jesus for three years because these women supported them out of their possessions. What they were doing was very, very important to our Lord's earthly ministry. And yet, this is the only time that that is told to us in four gospel accounts. Because as important as what they did was, what they were doing was never the most important thing happening. Never. Right? The most important thing that was happening was always whatever Jesus was doing or saying. What they were doing was important, but it was never the thing that was getting the most attention, and rightly so. Their great love of Christ caused humble service. What I love about this is their mostly unseen and unremarked service gives us a wonderful demonstration of what most of our Christian lives look like. Faithful service that is mostly unnoticed. Easily overlooked. Because when we as Christians serve Jesus, when we serve his church, we're doing it. We should be doing it because we love Jesus. 
So rightly, the attention should not be on us, which means what we're doing often passes unnoticed. Most of your faithful service as a Christian is humble, quiet, reliable, and easily forgotten. These women, I think we can confidently say, did not serve Jesus and the Twelve in this way because they wanted to be important. Because they wanted to do something that really, really mattered. Nor do I think they were particularly worried about whether or not anyone noticed what they were doing. They were worried about whether they could serve Jesus because they loved Jesus. Not what people thought about them. And that, I think, is why this passage is right here. It's not just a kind of transition point onto the rest of what else is happening, the next story. No, I think this episode, this little description, is placed here to help us understand what we should have paid the most attention to about the woman in Simon's house. Her act of love was extravagant. It was very emotional. It was beautiful for all those things. But the thing that made it Christian was that her attention was not on herself. It was not about her. It was about Jesus. Just like what David was doing in that episode that Caleb read for us of dancing naked before the Lord. What we should learn from that is not how you should behave when we sing songs in a few moments, right? Let's make that clear. Likewise, what that woman did with her hair and her tears is not instructive of what you should do in order to show that you really love Jesus. No, the point of both of those is how little both of them were thinking about themselves because their attention was on the Lord. They looked foolish. David looked foolish. This woman exposed herself to all kind of mockery. Everyone we know was, in fact, talking about her. It wasn't just she was afraid of that. They were talking about her. How little did she care? She was honoring her Lord. So, too, with these women here in verses 2 and 3. What we have here is a lesson of how the love of Christ will overwhelm our self-obsession. Don't get me wrong. Self-care, self-reflection has its place. It is important. But, beloved, is not our Lord far more beautiful and fascinating than your navel? Isn't life better when you reflect on him? These women were able to devote themselves to such practical, important, and unremarkable service because they love Jesus. It's important for us to reflect on because Christ's forgiveness and welcoming us into his household does not mean that all of us will serve him in ways that are obviously great and important. Not every Christian serves Christ in the most important, the most noticeable way that anyone can serve him. But every Christian will serve him 
in the ways that the Lord has gifted you because you love him. And that is what makes our service precious. Who it is done for. Not how great and glorious it looks. Easy for you to say, John, you might think. You get to go over there and do the really glorious, really important stuff. Friends, let me tell you a little something about my life. Most of it, nobody really cares much about. Most of the work I do goes unnoticed, just like you. This is so important for us to remember as followers of Jesus because it's so easy for us to evaluate the worth of our own affections, how much we really love Jesus based off of the extravagant, the extreme, the one-off actions that they produce. Perhaps those of you, brothers and sisters, who are about to go overseas feel like, finally, I'm able to do something that really matters for Jesus. Some of you who aren't going have thought, I wish I could do something like that that would really matter for Jesus. Don't get me wrong. That is a wonderful way to serve our Lord. But do not make the mistake of thinking that the worth of your place in the kingdom and the truthfulness of how much you love Jesus is based off of how many of those you can rack up in your lifetime. All those extravagant acts of love mean nothing apart from regular, ordinary acts of love. Let me repeat myself. All of those extravagant acts of love done in the name of Jesus, genuinely for Jesus, mean nothing apart from the regular acts of ordinary love. An example. If a man told me that he really loved his wife and he bought her one time a trip to Paris but refused to ever wash the dishes, how much would you believe him? It seems to me that most of us usually operate with two categories, important or not important, which leads us to downplay or neglect the area where most of us live most of our lives. Important, but not the most important thing. You'll be needlessly discouraged in your walk with the Lord if you think the only things that you can do that matter are the most important things. Dear brother and sister, if you want to do the most important thing in the kingdom of God, I hate to break it to you. Jesus already beat you to it. If you allow yourself to believe only the most important and most visible ways to serve are the ones that really count in serving the Lord and showing that you love him, you will be needlessly discouraged in your life in this church. And you will cut yourself off and cut others off from celebrating and rejoicing in the precious gifts the Lord has given you. Let me give you a couple of examples. How many of you thought about the fact that the lights are on in this room right now? And yet, gathering would be much more difficult if someone hadn't come in here and turn on the lights, turn on the air, set up the sound system. And I'm willing to bet that most of you, if you weren't the one doing that, You didn't think about that when you came in here. And that's fine because those are not the most important activities happening in this room right now. You see how they're important? Or consider the ministry of God's word. 
This right now, what's happening, the regular preaching of God's word is the most important way that God's word is ministered into your lives as members of this church. Not just this Sunday, because I'm preaching every Sunday. But if that is the only ministry of the word that is happening in this church, something is deadly wrong. God's word should be ministered and applied to you before the service, after the service, throughout the week. And those often unseen, unnoticed, unremarked on words that pass in the background, those are often what the Lord uses to change people. That word of encouragement, that advice about how you might try to share the gospel in that difficult situation, that gentle correction that helps a brother or sister turn away from sin before anyone in leadership in this church ever even hears about that sin. Those are beautiful acts of service to Jesus Christ himself because it's building up his body. Those services are not the most important thing that will happen in the life of the church, but they are essential to your well-being. Not the most important, important. It's helpful to recall how valuable those words are even when you forget what you just said to that person five minutes after you said it. The Lord still uses that in people's lives. As we conclude, let me point to two more examples. First, what I think is the prime example and the most visible to most of us of this kind of beautiful, humble, difficult-to-see service. Motherhood. Those of you, dear sisters, who are mothers, you know well that most of your activity, even with the advent of Instagram, goes unseen by the rest of the world. And the people that you're doing most of your service for are often not quite self-aware or mature enough to appreciate what you're doing for them. Your service goes unnoticed and unremarked and often undone the next day. Your work is often in the background to, let us say, just the more visible activity happening in your homes. And it might be easy to look at that and look at how you are spending your days feel like you're not really doing much for the Lord. What you're doing is un unimportant because it's unnoticed and overlooked. But consider how many mothers and grandmothers have been the main instrument by which children have come to know Jesus Christ. Reflect on how Paul spoke to his protege and son in the faith, Timothy, who had been, made, been taught in the scriptures that made him wise for salvation from birth by his mother and his grandmother. Because of their faithfulness, Timothy had been equipped from birth to do the ministry that we read about as Paul addresses him in 1st and 2nd Timothy. Church historian Anthony McGuckin says this, through long centuries and into the presence. In terms of church life, it was silent generations of mothers and grandmothers who chiefly passed on the faith to new generations. 
In times of stress and persecution, it was innumerable unnamed Christian women who kept the flame of the Christian life alive. When the more obvious structures, buildings destroyed, clergy assassinated, were devastated, these women remained. Of all the offices and structures of the church, the most unsung and perhaps the most precious of all is surely that of a grandmother telling the old stories and passing on a love of Christ from one generation to the next two. What is seen and what appears important in our eyes is not how we measure how well we are loving and honoring Christ. The question is who we love, who we are serving, not how much or what we are doing. Concern yourself with that question. And let the size or the significance of what you do in your life be sorted out by God. Lastly, let's put our attention back where it should be. Not on what our service should look like, but what our Savior is like. Puritan Richard Sibb says this, Is the Lord Christ a servant? This should teach us not to stand upon any terms. If Christ had stood upon terms, if he had refused to take upon him the shape of a servant, alas, where would we be and where would our salvation be? And yet, wretched creatures, we think ourselves too good to do God and our brethren service of any kind. Christ stood not upon his greatness, but being equal with God, became a servant. So we should descend from the heaven of our conceit and take upon us the form of servants and abase ourselves to do good to others, even to any, and account it an honor to do any good to others in the places we are in. Christ did not think himself too good to leave heaven. To conceal and veil his majesty under the veil of flesh. To work our redemption. To bring us out of the cursed estate we were in. Shall we think ourselves too great for any service? Christ's forgiveness causes humble service. Because our Lord Jesus was and is even now a servant to us. Not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. He died for us when we did not esteem him at all. Christ's forgiveness creates great love and causes humble service. Look at him. Isn't he wonderful? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for how you have revealed your kindness and your mercy to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that through him, you have forgiven us. Lord, cause our hearts to be filled with great love for Jesus because of what he has done for us. Lord, cause our hearts to be emptied of conceit. That we would delight in whatever service you allow us to do in the name of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.